Hey everyone, it's Matt Harmon from the Yahoo Fantasy Football Show. Are you sad there's no fantasy football going on right now? Yeah, me too. I've got good news for you though. It is fantasy baseball season right now. Join a public league, join an instant draft, or create a league with your buddies before opening day. It's Yahoo Fantasy Baseball time. Sign up for the 2024 fantasy baseball season at yahoo.com slash fantasy baseball or on the Yahoo Fantasy app. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. On this edition of the Yahoo Sports College Podcast, Would an expanded playoff help this weekend's dreadful slate of games? Should the North Texas fake punt be banned? Should a coach apologize for a 90-6 victory? And Pete sits down with Boston College coach Steve Adazio. I'm Dan Wetzel, joined by Pat Forty and Pete Thamel. There is only two games this weekend, gentlemen, where both teams are ranked. Number seven, Stanford, is visiting number 20, Oregon. And number one, Alabama, is hosting number 22, Texas A&M. That game, the Crimson Tide, are favored by four touchdowns or so. So, this is a brutal weekend of game. We deserve better as fans, waited all year for this. uh, And this is kind of where we're at in late September. Maybe one interesting game. Graham Couch, the columnist at the Lansing State Journal, had what I thought was an interesting piece this week, pushing for an eight-team playoff, in part by arguing that this would allow the sport to, quote, get its Septembers back by not eliminating or discouraging so many teams or even entire conferences. Note he's in the middle of the Big Ten. So early, I quote, An eight-team playoff saves us from ourselves and allows for the conversations we're having about our teams to come without such a heavy dose of angst and friction. If every major conference champion had a spot reserved, we could yell all day about Wisconsin or Michigan being in trouble this season, but if either wound up winning the Big Ten, they'd have a place at the table. The regular season would mean more because conference championships would mean everything. It would let teams develop as teams often do. Now, I am a big proponent of the V8 team playoff with five automatic bids for the major conferences, one reserved if a group of five school has a particularly strong season, uh, allowing like your UCF or your Boise underdog, and then the other two to three spots would be at large as they are now, uh, like last season, the playoff feature, last two seasons, a playoff featured team that did not win its conference title. So you can still slip in, then there's room for your Notre Dame, if it has a good year, or some other independence. Now, by doing this, the conference races would be huge and meaningful. As such, this weekend, I think games such as Wisconsin at Iowa, TCU at Texas, and the aforementioned Stanford at Oregon would actually mean something. Uh, I don't think anyone is very excited about any of them this weekend. Georgia at Missouri might be pretty meaningful, too. Um, I think in going to eight teams, though, you need to kill the conference championship weekend which has become increasingly 
uh, stale and meaningless. Too often it doesn't matter who wins it or even who's in it. Now, uh, how do you determine a champ in an oversized league? I don't know. you got to figure that out for your leagues. Maybe you play more league games, whatever. It can be done. Anyway, it's never too early to start arguing playoff reform, especially when a sport is giving us nothing else to talk about this weekend. So, Pat, what are your thoughts on Graham Couch's uh, take on this? Um, I'm all up for reform. That's fine. You know, look, first of all, I, I remain thrilled that we have a playoff and that we don't have the BCS. So that's my baseline starting point. I have a higher degree of general satisfaction with college football than I have had before. Uh, now, could it be better? Yes, absolutely. I think six teams would be better. I think eight teams would be better. I think 12 would be better. I think 16 would be better. And I, I wrote something last December, actually, with my man, my friend Mike Patton, his plan on how to do a 16-teamer. Uh, the, the problem, as you mentioned, Dan, if you, if you, do it, if you get rid of conference championships, you, you have the imbalanced schedule situation, and you're going to end up crowning an erroneous champion. Last year, Wisconsin would have been the champion of the Big Ten, and they were not the best team in the Big Ten. They didn't play anybody. So I think you have to either keep the conference championships or – you find a way to have divisional champions and put them in the playoff, like in the patent plan. It's a long, complicated thing. I'm not going to go into all of it now, but people can Google it, find it, and look at it. But yeah, I mean, I, I think bigger is better. Uh, I think bigger is probably inevitable, but I don't know how close we are to that happening. I would say that you just need to get rid of divisions and then rejigger the schedule where you don't have these divisional things, and that would be the big tense problem. They have also, two years ago, had Ohio State make the playoff despite not even reaching the championship game. So it's already a farce. Um, Clemson, Alabama last year didn't have to win. They were going to get in. So I think it's a farce anyway. I think they got to get rid of these divisions, which, by the way, are kind of ruining the Big Ten to begin with because uh, it's so lopsided and, and it can be that way. So you do that and all of a sudden Wisconsin can't hide behind a lot of uh, Big Ten West Every every day game or you know every year they still can get luck of the draw on the you could get the luck of the draw but right now it's not working so I don't know Pete you think this would help though just increase interest in some of these conference races I mean we're out you know last year pretty much by mid middle of the season every Pac twelve game was meaningless on a national stage Um, that could certainly happen again for one or two conferences. It just seems like we write off so many teams so early that you you go into these things going, okay, what counts here? And and none of the games end up counting. Yeah. Well, first, I want to point out two things, Dan. One, you're drinking Fiji water, which actually costs more than the Bush, Bush Light you usually <laughs> drink. So <What laughs> I think you're the on only here? person in America who drinks more expensive water than beer. <laughs> wow. It's good water. My second is that I've realized that the podcast has just become like a subliminal vehicle to sell death for the BCS back copies on Amazon <laughs> for like a dollar twenty nine. This is not true. No. <laughs> so you can afford your Fiji water. I see right through you, Dan Wetzel. Um, look, twenty twenty five. Twenty twenty five is the year where right now, like the the current contract for the college football playoff ends. So. The, the question to me is, will there be change before then? Will they have to go in and rejigger the contract? Now, obviously, ESPN would jump up on the table and say yes, because 
more more playoff games means more money and more ratings. It's really simple. The balance here that's really interesting is this. If you go to a model where the conference championship games, and they're not going to get rid of the conference championship games, Dan. There's too much money in them. There's more money in a playoff. More money in those first-round games. That, that money doesn't all necessarily go directly to the conferences. They so, would if they were all in it. It would if they're all in it, but I don't agree with you that the, the leagues don't would... mess with my playoff understanding, Pete. I'm not. I'm, I'm messing with my understanding of conferences <laughs> liking money. Okay, like, I'll, get, I'll get you more money. They told us all this crap before. Can't do, can't do, can't do. They're the, all lying. the SEC they is not it. giving up the SEC title game, which is exponentially more lucrative than the Pac-12 title game. Yeah, but it's not more lucrative. Not more lucrative than the playoff. It's where it's worth twelve. It will be more, but you understand. We got in this situation where it took so long to get a playoff because all these commissioners are just clinging to their slice of the cookie. Nobody's like, "Oh, what's going to be best holistically? What's going to be best for the sport?" Everyone's like, "What's going to fill up our coffers the most?" And that's where we are. You make the cookie bigger. You can make the cookie bigger, but the problem is the SEC slice of the cookie is way bigger than the Big 12 slice of the cookie, or whatever you want to have it. And there's value in these games that I don't think the leagues will let go. That's all. I, I, I can I can I can show you the numbers that it would not because you're going to put two to three SEC teams in this sucker. So you could do it. That's all I'm saying. Here, here's the tension what, what the that I find saying. that I find interesting. Other than your pesky math, um, the, the tension is this: like, if we went to some model like that, do we lose the early season where you know you have Notre Dame playing Michigan, Michigan, and you have these great interconference games? Texas USC, for example, this weekend on paper should have been a more marquee game than it was. Uh, you know, you look over the years at some of the great, like Ohio State USC games, and you know, do we lose some of that early season magic because everybody would be so focused on just winning the league that they're going to play UMass four straight weeks? Um, that is possible. Uh, that was certainly a problem with the BCS. Is what they figured out was the voters uh, were too just all, all they cared about was. Uh, record, right? So if you were undefeated, you had a chance. If you had a loss, you you had less of a chance. So the best thing to do was just play nobody in the non-conference or try to try to do nothing. So we we get the playoff committee, which is supposed to reward strength of schedule. They have been very uneven on that. What they really they're really about protecting uh, the establishment, of course, but they have been very uneven on that. And they could be better at making that statement and enforce better better games. Uh, but would we take a step? It is better than it was five years ago. But do we take a step back with this? That is certainly possible. Um, the thing is, you still have that at-large part of this. So if you want to put all your eggs in, we're going to win the Big Ten and we're going to play nobody, then you know you can try that. But what if you do lose? You want to have that. You know, if, if Michigan had defeated Notre Dame or Ohio State's got a nice win over TCU now, if they lose to Penn State, they still got a shot to get back in there. Plus, you you know, you have recruiting, you have different reasons to do this thing. You have these not these neutral side games for big money. So that is definitely a risk. But I, I don't think it would I don't think it would go too bad. I just kind of look at it like I've argued this all along, the, the, the this playoff cuts out so many games and eliminates so many teams early that less games matter. Now, they always say, well, more games matter more, but really more, this way more games matter more because you'd have five conference races, and you'd actually care if like a UCF is undefeated because they might steal an at-large spot. 
tell you who would not be thrilled by uh, by that setup is uh, if if people start freezing out or minimizing the non-conference schedule, what happens with Notre Dame? Then Notre Dame might feel pressured to join the ACC uh, if they can't schedule people. Uh, you would like to think people would still like to schedule Notre Dame because the allure of getting them in your in your stadium is huge, but uh, they might be on the outside looking in in that sort of situation. Yeah, Notre Dame scheduling would be interesting. They kind of, they have five games now with the ACC. They play Stanford, USC, and Navy every single year. That gets them to eight, and then there's four more. They kind of they kind of piece together. I really feel like that's a long. First of all, I don't think any commissioner cares what happens to Notre Dame. Um, so I don't think that's really a big issue. I'm just looking at the benefit of the thing. What do we have this weekend? A slate of games that really doesn't excite too many people. No, I agree. It doesn't. It's, it is it is not compelling. And, you know, I, I don't know whether it's completely playoff driven. I think the, the schools could, the conferences could schedule better uh, to give us a little bit more. But uh, anything that I think would, would improve the college football regular season tends to be, you know, one of the best of all regular seasons in any sport. And so anything that would would add some luster to that without losing the uh, the postseason uh, playoffs, uh, you know, would, would be would be fine with me. Dan, what's your math on the eight team, how uh, how you'd let in a, a, a smaller school like your beloved Minutemen who are independent or a UCF or a Boise? Like, how would you what would be the metric to get them in the playoff? I, I remember there was a convoluted one for the BCS back in the day. I'm just curious. You leave it to the committee. Um, I mean, I still believe in the committee. OK. Um, uh, you know, I think you kind of know when there's a when there's a decent team. I don't know, maybe they got to be in the top ten or something like that. I don't. I wouldn't just necessarily give them one every year. There's some years they don't deserve it. I wouldn't sure. necessarily no, tie it to you have to be undefeated because, you know, let's say, let's say Boise went 11, 12 and one or whatever they end up, and that that game against Stillwater was lost on a hail mary. You know, some great game or or something. I I, I don't like. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't – the thing about conference titles even, I don't normally like regimented things. I'd, I'd prefer if you just left it to a committee. In this case, I do because it creates it creates the, the conference race. Like it just – it doesn't mean anything to win the conference. You know, it's like what's a conference? I mean, you know, hey, Penn – like it's two years ago, Ohio State didn't even play in the championship game. And they were better off because of it. Because they, they didn't have to risk anything. Last year, Alabama, same thing. Alabama didn't have to play in the SEC title game. It didn't – you don't risk anything. Boom, you're in an advantage. So what are these games? And now, look, you can do – you can go to eight with the conference championship games. I just think if you take it out, you make it a little bit easier. You really reform the postseason. Um, and I think you've, these games have kind of gotten stale. And other than two of them, they really don't, they don't really sell out unless you have some kind of, you know, really good – geographic situation set up I, I just don't know i just think the sport should always be looking on how it can improve itself other sports always try to improve itself every other league every other sport we watch college football sits around and goes can't do anything I, we got no idea we, don't, <laughs> we have to do it exactly how we did it uh when when uh bo Schembechler and uh, bear bryant were coaching or or else this is all wrong so unless it's expanding conferences and things like that at least it's better uh, anyway, than college basketball. <laughs> it is better than college basketball. Just pointless at times. Um, all right. Urban Meyer did an interview, another interview, or a couple this week, a press conference. 
More statements were released by Urban Meyer. Pat, you were in Columbus for the the near hour-long meeting with the media. I'll give credit to Ohio State. They at least had Urban talk. I thought they'd pull the football-only questions. Um, But Urban spoke. What were your thoughts? What was your takeaway from the latest round of Urban Meyer drama? Yeah, I will give credit to Ohio State, credit to Jerry Emig, their excellent media relations director, credit to Urban for standing there for 57 minutes and taking questions. So, you know, that it wasn't a rush, rush, let's get through this as fast as we can and try to minimize what we're actually exposed to here. So good for them for that. Uh, what he said uh, at, at times seemed very scripted, like he had been coached up and certainly – uh, he was more prepared than he was in his last two abysmal public outings when he was at Big Ten Media Day and really got this whole firestorm going by uh, speaking, either misspeaking or being misunder- misunderstanding the situation or flat out being disingenuous about Zach Smith's situation. And then the other debacle, uh, it was his, uh, his Q&A after the, uh, the suspension was announced when basically it was all about poor Urban and and what a terrible thing that had befallen him. Uh, this, he was at least better. He was more prepared. He was contrite. He was in command of the facts for the most part. But the one thing that tripped me up, and Dan, of course, we've spoken about that. You wrote about it. I wrote about it. Uh, basically, I, I don't see any other way to put it than, than he did cover up prob- the biggest problem in Zach Smith's past when it reappeared in, this, in t- 2015, when Gene Smith, the athletic director, went to Urban and said, hey, he's been accused of domestic violence. Urban should have said then uh, he was accused before in 2009 at Florida. And I know that. And so that's twice. What do we do about this? And that's not what he did. Although it was interesting. He said twice yesterday when I asked him about it, he said, I thought I told Gene, Uh, which almost which made me almost wonder if maybe he's covering for Gene here Uh, or it's just that pesky memory of his again. But that's a big, big point, and it's a big distinction of were you trying to make sure you were upfront with everyone about everything, or were you trying to protect this guy and to keep things under wraps? So that stood out. Uh, his answers about whether or not uh, Courtney Smith was ever domestically abused, whether he believes she was abused, I think quite clearly he does not think that, but he was not willing to say it. Uh, so those are the two things where I th- still think there's there's – a gap in credibility to a degree uh, with Urban and with what he has said, what he said, and what he did. I think a Grand Canyon of credibility because Urban. <laughs> I, I just think the guy lies so much. He lies like what he wa- wishes was going to happen, and so he'll sit there and say, uh, "Oh yeah, I think I told him." Well, you know, then you're contradicting the report, which says you didn't. You know, he'll use the report when he wants to, but then he'll come up with other stuff like stuff that's been refuted by the by the investigation and Ohio State itself, which was trying to protect him. And he'll be like, yeah, no, like he, I think he was acting like he never read the report. It's like the Big Ten media day thing. It was like, well, um, Urban, uh, did, did you know anything about a felony with Zach, Zach Smith and domestic be- felony? No, no, there's no felony. You know, like he acts like what? Like it's a totally different subject. OK, how about a misdemeanor? Uh, I mean, you know, he just goes with this stuff. Yeah. How about the fact that the cops? Yeah, right. Were called, like you yeah. know, you know what you're talking about, but he just smoothly lies so much 
And it's just, I think he's just in a delusional spot. And I, I'm not really saying that to pick on him. I just think that's who he is. If you look through the years, I, I'm just, I continue to be baffled about his ability to, to talk about how he was this great judge of character in 2009. He has this great memory of everything that happened in 2009 when these people came to him and, and he, he didn't believe Zach did it and, and all this stuff. And it's like 2009, you had 31, you know, you're in the midst of 31 arrests, not counting Aaron Hernandez. Like you were surrounded by people who were breaking the law yeah. and you had no clue or concern. I'm not surprised you took <laughs> Zach Smith's idea of it. I mean, with Aaron Hernandez, at one point, the police came to ask, to want to speak to Aaron Hernandez about a double shooting after a party in Gainesville. And Aaron, ref- yeah, a double shooting. Pretty serious. Involving yeah. one of your players. And Aaron refused to talk to police, as is his right. And the case went nowhere. This would be a cause for alarm if someone you knew had the police come and say, I'd like to talk to this guy about a double shooting. Okay, this isn't like, I think he stole a pack of gum from the 7-Eleven. And it's, you know, so, uh, you know, all of this stuff with with Urban, he's just, he is what he is. He's a heck of a football coach. I don't know how you believe anything the guy says about anything, but uh, he's there to, He's there to coach football, not to uh, not to tell the truth. So I really think he wants to believe that he's this great fighter for against domestic violence, and he never oh, did yeah. anything wrong, and everything's great, and everybody else failed him. I think he really believes this stuff. He just has a a ability to lie about so much or misrepresent stuff, and 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 act uh, I don't know, dumbfounded about it. I don't, what do you think, Pete? Well, I think the domestic violence point is interesting because that was the one thing he must have said at what, Pat, in the thing six or seven times yesterday. For I sure. have not, you know, uh, ever endorsed domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera. So I think if you spin this situation forward, what Urban Meyer has, he probably has five, six years left at Ohio State at the most. You know, if, if you look at his age, he has an unbelievable opportunity right now to make a huge impact in that space. And if he dedicates the time, the pulpit, the resources of himself, his wife, their stature in the community in Ohio State to that, his words clearly have not done him any justice. His first two press conferences obviously were, were disasters. He was he was okay yesterday, I, I guess I would say. But here's, here's the thing. Now you have this opportunity, you have this spotlight on you. You've been intertwined into this issue. Can you use that to make a difference in Columbus and beyond in the domestic violence issue? And I think his actions could eventually match what he says his words were. Yeah, we will. Uh, we'll see on that one. Uh, but you're right. He could. He could try to do something. Donate money. Raise money. Whatever. Uh, all right. North Texas. North Texas had the play of the weekend when it had punt returner Keegan Brewer act casually as he caught the punt like he had waved for a fair catch. Only he hadn't waved for one. The Arkansas players who were running down their gunners fell for it. Began walking off the field, which allowed. Uh, Brewer to race down the 90 yards for a touchdown. It was a very cool play. Uh, North Texas special teams coordinator Marty Biaghi actually met with the officials before the game to let them know the trick play was coming so they wouldn't be fooled and inadvertently whistle the play dead and screw everything up. That is unusual, I would think. Uh, then there's Brewer, who uh, the punt returner, who was a walk-on at UNT, and then quit football for a while to pursue a career you know, as a firefighter, 
before returning to the team. He weighs all of 180 pounds and stands 5'11". Great stuff. It's what makes college football fun, except that I, I hate doing this, but what if Arkansas wasn't fooled and a Razorback absolutely lit Brewer up legally and inflicted Lord knows what damage? That wouldn't be cool. So did UNT leave their guy out there as a sitting duck? According to this really good Ross uh, Dellinger story at SI.com, the game officials actually told Biagi, when he, the coach, when he told them that they were going, he was going to get Brewer killed. Of course, coach brushed it aside and said Brewer was willing. Uh, should he be <laughs> He's willing to die for North Texas should... football? All right. Yeah. <laughs> mean green forever. Should a coach allow a player to be willing to take that hit? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. Pat, what do you, what do you think? No, no, a coach should not. I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. It was it was a really cool imaginative play, but the downside of what could happen if a team's actually paying attention, which, you know, most of them would be, is that you could get that guy seriously injured. I mean, we've seen times before, sometimes like when a gunner mistimes it and hits a guy while they're still waiting for the punt to arrive. And you've seen guys get really hurt that way. And this could have happened to this 5'11", 180-pound guy. Uh, You know, and I – that. That would be a lot, boy. If I were the special teams coach, that would be hard to live with myself if I set up a guy for that. I mean, that would be brutal. Uh, and I will say there's also there's been this discussion of whether the NCAA may actually outlaw the play, not because of danger to the player, but because it's unfair, which is ridiculous, uh, to use deception. No. I, I, that The other cool play that happened this weekend that got taken back, unfortunately, TCU against Ohio State had a fake kick return where they had a guy lie down in the end zone, and then the guy kicked it to the other guy, and then he threw it across the field, and he ran it 80 yards for a touchdown, except he threw a forward pass. But it was a beautiful play. Ohio State saw it coming at the last second. Their coaches were sprinting down the sideline screaming, and it still worked. If you're going to take subterfuge and deception out of the rule book, I guess you'd have to take that play out too. So I I, I would not like to see those plays outlawed, but I, if, I, if I were the North Texas special teams coach, I, I couldn't live with myself sending the guy out there to do that. Pat, you're a wet blanket. Marty Biaggi is an American hero. <laughs> I think he should be our podcast assistant coach of the year. I think he's better than Tim Salem, the guy who drinks flat Mountain Dew and doesn't go home and do his wife's chores. He's the Mr. Miyagi of college assistants. That play was a miracle. He didn't get his guy killed. The, the guy who should be uh, vilified from that game is John Chavis, the Arkansas defensive coordinator who's been asleep at the job for about five years. They gave up 44 to North Texas, or I guess 37 because of the because uh, of that play. That guy's – Big Chief's been napping for a while, so vilify him for not doing his job and not, not being able to stop a spread offense since they came into, since they came into Vogue. Uh, our, our guy, Miyagi, I'm, I'm with him. I'm ride or die with him. Biagi, Biagi, Miyagi, ride or die. Go, you go pay Keegan Brewer's uh, hospital bills if he ends up getting killed there. I just love the visual of the refs going, "Dude, are you crazy? You're gonna kill this guy." Yeah, like, yeah don't worry, don't worry about it. We're good. I mean, does anything say He's college not, sports better than that? It's football. He's volunteering. He's a firefighter. He's tough, tough guy. Um. All right. Look. Hey, on a very quick side note. North Texas is three and zero and like blowing everybody out, yeah. including Arkansas. At, you know, I know Arkansas don't look too good, but still, it's an SEC team. 
the Boise bus is broken down. So is this our group of five contender, or are we still going with UCF with because uh, they're still unbeaten? I'm on the UCF bandwagon hard. I mean, it's a really tough bandwagon to be on. They've won 15 straight games, and they have a Heisman candidate at quarterback. But until someone moderately slows down Mackenzie Milton and all that skill that obliterated Auburn in the Peach Bowl, uh, I think your, uh, your group of five champ interloper is uh, in Orlando. Uh, yeah, I got to go with you, Pete, there. I, I mean, UCF's uh, awfully hard to uh, to overturn there. North Texas is intriguing. They got a good quarterback, Mason Fine. I talked about him earlier in the week. And Seth Littrell, the coach there, has done a good job. You know, they score a lot of points. Uh, but, hey, you know, I mean, if, actually, if we're going to look really off-brand, then what about my boys, the Buffalo Bulls? 3-0. and Come on. Give them some love. All right. There's your love. Buffalo. <laughs> Buffalo's good. Um, Hey, uh, I mean, it's Khalil Mack's uh, alma mater, and he's just tearing up the NFL, so why not? Uh, hey, a colleague of ours, Lee Jenkins, truly great writer for Sports Illustrated, um, covered the NBA, and he, was, he wrote the best profiles, was very tight with LeBron, had some of the most insightful LeBron stories we've seen. Uh, just hired by the L.A. Clippers to be their executive, of re- executive director of research and identity. I have no idea what that means. Uh, don't care. Uh, Lee <laughs> Jenkins went from covering the NBA to working for an NBA team, albeit the Clippers. So uh, it's like G League plus, but still, he's in there. Now, the question I pose to you guys, uh, and I'll answer first, is uh, what could you do for a college football team if someone asked you to leave the writing profession and podcasting and come work for like the Alabama Crimson Tide or something? Or the or whatever the uh, maybe this is Rutgers the Rutgers version uh, the Clipper Rutgers analogy, um, I could be the bagman. I would be a tremendous <laughs> bagman. That's what a UMass degree does during the Calipari era. It really prepares you for that role. <laughs> I could run the bag, no problem. Yeah. Now we know how uh, Lou Rowe got his money. Okay, I don't know. I don't know anything you're talking about. That's why I'd be a good bagman. What about well, you, Pat? What's your value? Well, I will mine say, is very valuable. The amount of time you spent earlier in your career with sketchy dudes in college basketball probably did prepare you very well for uh, a bagman <laughs> career. It's quite a wonder I was not indicted. <laughs> I'll say this. I could be your crisis manager and your public speaking uh, counselor. Because I sure as heck wouldn't have let Urban Meyer go an entire month without getting the words Courtney Smith out of his mouth after this whole thing blew up. I would have made sure he at least said, I would have said, look, Urban, no matter what else you say, remember that there is a woman here who says that she was harmed by one of your guys. Say something empathetic or something caring about her. And he never did that for a month, which just astounded me. So... Let me do that. Crazy Give me a chance to coach up Jeremy Pruitt. I'll tell him what asparagus is. Uh, you know, a lot of these guys need a lot of help uh, figuring out how to answer questions. I can, I can help them get through that, and I can be their crisis coordinator as well. Sign me up. Associate Athletic Director for Chicken Skin and Statements. That would be a really good title for Pat. Uh, <laughs> I, I am not good at math, which is one of the reasons why I'm a journalist. Uh, so I wouldn't be great at the analytic part of it, but I would want to be the fake punt slash – onside kick coach 
And my job would be to analyze every opportunity because I don't feel like there's enough fakes in college football. I feel like there should be one kicker who's only dedicated to onside kicks. So that would be my job. I would be the special assistant to the special teams coach with risk-reward of fakes as my specialty. I'll tell you one. I always (laughs) say, okay, you know when they're kind of like they're stuck on like the 40 and 45-yard line, but it's third and fourth and long, so they're going to punt it. And then they try to get yeah. their good punter to punt it short. No, get a guy who can only kick it 30 yards and have him be the punter for that. It's so <laughs> obvious. The sand wedge punter. Right? <laughs> yes. If you, you need someone to drive it 210 water. yards, I'm your guy. You want 300? <laughs> Don't ask Dustin Johnson to take a little off. <laughs> I'd like to see the, the tryouts in fall camp for that. All right, who's terrible at punting? Get over here. Some right, guy good. from the Give front. Yeah, I'm not a good punter, but I can, I can hit 30 every time. That, you got a job. <laughs> All right, last weekend, South Dakota State, the Jackrabbits, baby, defeated uh, Arkansas Pine Bluff 90-6. to 90 for South Dakota State, 6 for Pine Bluff. This is a true story. Side note, people often ask me if there's one game I didn't cover that I wish I did, what would it be? And I always say Georgia Tech beating Cumberland 222 to zip back in 1916 because what the hell? Who wouldn't want to watch that? <laughs> uh, Just to I, see what it looked like. I, oh, yeah. yeah, I also would have known the outcome, and I would have bet the house on that. <laughs> they were laying 175. <laughs> <laughs> you had to have – you really – Gut up on that one, but they, they took care of it, man. Everyone was happy that day. Anyway, 90 to 6. South Dakota State gained 926 yards. <laughs> Only Davidson, which gained 964 in beating a Division II school this year, 90, they had a 91 61 game in football. Davidson and somebody. Um, uh, that's a basketball score. A, 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 not a bad, like, that's a pretty offensive basketball anyway, score. That's, Steph anyway, Curry that's, was that's, playing. The second all time. Yeah, that was a Steph Curry. Uh, also of note, South Dakota State's kicker is named Chase Vinatieri, Adam's nephew. He went 11 for 12 on PATs, and he put in a full day. Anyway, classic beatdown. Uh, this is not the biggest one. Obviously, we had the 222 and zero. Uh, back in 1968, Houston defeated Tulsa 100 to six. You got to go for this is my thing. You got to go for 100 if you're up near there. Um, so people getting mad at Kobe for still shooting late. No, you got to do it. Uh, last year, Division Three St. John's of Minnesota defeated the College of St. Scholastica 98 to zip. Why? Anyway, uh, SDSU coach John Stigelmeyer apologized immediately after the game for letting it get out of hand uh, and said he was wished he had been more respectful of Pine Bluff. Uh, that included the last touchdown, which – I guess his like fifth string QB was supposed to run it, but instead he threw it and it went in for a touchdown. Um, so here's the question: Is this was should was should he apologize now? In full disclosure, I once coached a U8 indoor soccer game where we won 32 to zero. So I think my opinion will be obvious on this. But Pat Forty should Coach Stegelmeyer have apologized, or is 90 to six fair game? Well, it's great to be on a podcast with the Steve Spurrier of UH Soccer. That's that's nice that you're <laughs> running it up on small children. 
Uh, but at least you're running it up on small children with small children. So that that's small okay. children are running it up on other small children. Okay. Yeah. He delivered bags of gummy worms instead of bags of cash <laughs> in training for uh, his job. We had job. a PED scandal later. You know. Was... Uh, no, I, I generally speaking, I'm I'm not one to get bent out of shape over quote unquote running it up or not running it up. If you know, if you're out there playing, you play to do the best you can. And uh, you know, if you've got the your your best players still in the game in the fourth quarter of that game, that's a bit of a problem. But you know, people are get way too sensitive about this stuff in college athletics. I'll give you a quick quick uh, swimming comparison. What they do in dual meets in college is basically once one team gets enough points to guarantee they're going to win, they declare that they're going to swim exhibition in the rest of the events so it doesn't look as bad. Well, Stanford last year, women's swimming won 93 out of 98 individual events. They could have beaten everybody like 3 million to nothing if they wanted to, but they don't do it that way, which I think is a little oversensitive, like I said. My problem is, in this instance, don't schedule teams that you're going to beat 90 to 6. You know what? Go find some, go pick on somebody your own size, play a team of commensurate ability. And then if you, you know, if they, if they have the same number of scholarships and they're in the same level as everything with you, then score as many as you want. I feel like the Jackrabbits should have gone for 100, Dan. Yeah, me too. I actually interviewed Coach Stiglmeyer last year because Dallas Goddard, the tight end who went pretty high in the draft, was on South Dakota State. Uh, South Dakota State has Mike Dom, the really good, uh, the really good players, led them to a couple NCAA tournaments. Uh, I'm all for the Jackrabbits doing what the uh, doing what they're able to do against the opposition. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna cry for uh, for whatever direction of Arkansas. Pine bluff. bluff that they pounded back in. You know, they both signed up to play the game. I'm sure Pine Bluff got a nice, like, $75,000 check for it. And, uh, yeah, you'll get no tears here. Yeah, no, got to go for it. I mean, if, you, if you're willing to play the game, you're willing to uh, fall into that. And that's, uh, that's kind of the deal. Um, so, go, go Jackrabbits. That's, our, that's my team of the week, 90-6. to six, Although, no apologies necessary. Vontae Davis is in the news this week. Former Illinois Illini was playing for Buffalo Bills in his 10th season when he decided to retire at halftime of their game Sunday. Pretty funny story, of course. Just up and quit. Said he wasn't physically able to play, so there's no reason to continue. I kind of understand his reasoning. Um, Some Bills fans are up in arms, but many Bills fans also quit in the game at halftime. There's there's, a half-empty stadium, and there was literally a video of some Bills fans getting out of their car and fighting at a nearby toll booth. During the third quarter of the game, I love the Bills Mafia. This guy, sometimes you just got to throw down at the, in the exact change lane. This is why. This is why you got to get speed pass. This is why you got. I mean, yeah. One, it's a pretty good video. I, I encourage everyone to look it up. One guy fought like two, three dudes. He's, and, and this was not did not look like a tough guy, but he scrapped. So did Vontae Davis drive by in the background and wave because he has to have easy no. pass, right? I mean, there's no way. Yeah. He had left earlier. Yeah, oh, okay. Was, All right. Yeah, yeah, he had already left. And yeah. then it, the, the guy filming the video is literally listening to the Bills game <laughs> in that. So the background music is the Bills like broadcast. It's pretty good. Anyway. Um, now, I uh, love Vontae's take this job and shove it ethos, but I'm a, a selfish bastard, as we know. Um, were there ever a college game you guys covered that you wanted to just quit in the middle rather than stick around and have to write it up? Pat? Oh, 
many, yes, uh, but the, the the ones that jump out in my mind were in the in the 1990s whenever Kentucky played Vanderbilt because both teams were terrible every year and the game was in November and the weather was usually bad and when you're playing in a half-empty stadium with bad weather uh, at Vandy with that terrible artificial turf they used to have, you are questioning your livelihood and how you are possibly going to dredge a column out of the carnage you are watching down below. It does remind me, the the greatest uh, sports writer sacrifice of all time to go see a terrible Kentucky Vanderbilt game, our friend Chuck Culpepper, now of the Washington Post, then of the Lexington Herald-Leader. The game was in Nashville. He was driving uh, from Lexington to Nashville, a couple of, about three hours probably, between Bowling Green and Nashville, about an hour apart, his car breaks down. Chuck, at that point, he's got an out. He's got to get out of jail free card. He does not have to cover this game. His car is broken down. What does he do? He calls a cab and pays like $200 to cab to the game, which was just completely misplaced priorities. But the kicker on that is that Chuck was so uh, thankful to the cabbie that he gave the cabbie as a tip the title to his car broken down (laughs) on the side of the road. And the kicker to the kicker, Chuck has never had a car since then. 20-some years without a car. Unbelievable. Great amount. Gave away the car in rural Kentucky. Yes. And how about this guy who decided as a career choice, I think I'm going to try to be a cab driver in rural Kentucky. (laughs) Yeah, right, in Bowling Green. Huh. He needed the tip, I'm sure. I'm sure business was slow. This is not, yeah, not running the LaGuardia to Midtown right route, route there. Um, gave it, just gave him the car. Gave him the car. A, I mean, obviously never, it broke down. Never but, drove the car again, never owned a car again. Uh, that's not bad. Uh, Pete, any games you wanted to just quit on? Uh, I actually did two weeks ago. Uh, I did, tried to do a, I tried to do a double. Yeah, you, you went right to, right to your turn. bosses aren't listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was in the no uh, one's listening. I was in the Houston area to uh, to cover A and M Clemson. There was an 11 a.m. Houston Arizona kick, and I believe it was 31 to nothing at the half. Although I have to admit I wasn't paying that close of attention. It might have been 31 to seven. Um, one could argue I quit and left early to beat traffic to College Station, but I would argue that Kevin Sumlin and Noel Mazzone quit, considering the game plan and the play calling that I saw them do in the first half. So at that point, I was going to stay for the whole game if it was close. I wanted to see Ed Oliver in person. Um, but at halftime, I was like, you know what? And I, I stopped in Navistota and got some barbecue. And quite frankly, it was a great decision. <laughs> you vaunted on Arizona. Wow. I, I did. I did. And the, the final score, there was no, like, epic comeback that made me regret, you know, oh, no. that. I was, oh. It allowed me to listen to Eastern Michigan Purdue in the car, which may have been the highlight of my college football season so far. <laughs> I uh, I covered a high school game once as a stringer, and uh, it was – I'm going to think – I think it was 0-0, but it might have been 3-3. Three, three. I might might be embellishing it in my mind, making it even worse. But <laughs> we were in the third quarter, and a thunderstorm came through, like massive lightning, and they just canceled the game. And everybody went running. Like a lightning bolt hit pretty nearby. And play – like they guys got on the bus. Like it was total mayhem. And then I'm sitting there. And I got nothing to write because there's no action in the game, and I have no one to talk to. Like, just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I was, Who are you stringing it for, Dan? I what what for is the, steam? I think I was working for the Detroit News at the time. But anyway, okay. it, was, uh, it was probably the Detroit News. Uh, yeah, I was totally screwed. Um, so I had to come up with something out of that one. Um, I, the one I really kind of quit on was the Bama-Notre Dame national title game. You sure uh, did. X, X number of years <laughs> ago, uh, much like the Notre Dame. It was over. That, I've never seen a football game that was over in one play. It was like like the Alabama offensive line just moved the the Notre Dame defensive line like six yards the first play. And I was like, oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Notre Dame has no chance in this football game. Like, did that? And then they lined it up and did it again. It was like maybe they had bad, bad uh, grips on their feet or something. I mean, I don't know what happened. That was a massacre. So I wrote my column. Uh, in the third quarter, and that game was famous because Brent Musburger started salivating over Catherine Webb. So I, I decided to file my column in the third quarter of the game and yeah. just have them fill in the numbers. And then I went looking for uh, the lovely Ms. Webb in the stands and eventually interviewed her uh, about her, her star-turning night. I broke it to her that she had become extremely famous because she had a, she had a cell phone um, – and like at the time she had like, like 500 like Twitter followers. And then every time a new person followed her on Twitter, she'd get an email. And so she realized something had happened and people were texting her, but she got like 80,000 emails <laughs> because she, she gained all these followers in like instantaneously, like LeBron James followed her for a couple minutes there. Like he was trying to slide in there, you know? And <laughs> It drained her battery so quick, her phone died. So she's like, what happened exactly? Like She's trying to get the story. I'm like, well, Brent Musburger. <laughs> it's a very awkward interview. But I, I quit on the game and went and found her, which was a much higher red column than, um, than that. And then three weeks later, she was covering the Super Bowl. I saw her at the Super Bowl. She was already working. Still a star turn. She made it to the Super Bowl much quicker than my career did. I don't, I don't know why. Whoever could have picked Notre Dame to win that game, Dan? Do you know anyone who picked Notre Dame to win that game? <laughs> that wasn't me. <laughs> just, just, just wondering if anyone here did. I, uh, I had the tide. Moving on. Uh, no, I, I, I may have. I may have. But, uh, yeah, it was truly that game was over on the first play. But uh, I do remember very distinctly Dan turning to me in the press box and saying, this is terrible. I'm going to write Catherine Webb. And I was like, really? <laughs> okay <laughs> so because after that i was like well i guess so why not and then yeah that thing got read like crazy and I, I don't think my game story on an absolute massacre got read very much yeah well i found uh i i had to find her that was the thing that was yeah. the hard part um i did write a I did write a column like typical this is every college football writer's done though well that nick saban's really awesome like <laughs> 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 nothing i have nothing to add i'm just going with that yeah, Catherine Webb, one of the more eventful. But, yeah, that was one of the worst games I've ever ever uh, uh, covered. Uh, all right, Pete sat down with BC coach Steve Adazio, who uh, – Adazio, and I believe you guys talked Italian food. I believe you talked uh, uh, building up Boston College. Uh, Eagles are playing pretty good. They got some Heisman candidates uh, doing well. So um, you, you recommend this interview, Pete? I, I do. Eagles ranked for the first time since 2008. And uh, if, if, you know, find someone who loves you like Steve Adazio loves eating Italian food in the North End. That would be I was my at, advice. Um, uh, Lemoncello's in the North End last year before. He, That's his spot. Spoiler. Before a <laughs> UFC card uh, last January. 
and Mike Vrabel was there, and he had just gotten hired to be a Tennessee Titan coach. It's like a football royalty inside uh, Limoncello's, which is not a very big place. So, uh, Vrabel's kid plays for BC, so there might there might be a tie there. Yeah, so good stuff. Italian food, at least. We'll discuss that. All right, here's the interview. Welcome to the Yahoo Sports College podcast. Pete Thamel, senior reporter for Yahoo Sports, here with Steve Adazio, Boston College head coach, uh, in in Steve's office here in lovely Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, looking out over the new football facility over at BC, the new practice facility that just opened in August. Uh, Eagles are 3-0 this week, headed to a tough road date with Purdue. Uh, Steve, I'm going to start with a little big-picture offense for you. Uh, Right now, your team is number 28 in snaps in offense. You've scored 39 points a game since you inserted A.J. Dillon, your Heisman candidate, as a starter about the midway point of last season. And a lot of this macro change in your offense and production can be pinpointed to obviously A, very good players, but B, a very succinct schematic shift that has BC here. And I'm wondering if you can step back with me and walk me through how you decided to go no huddle, pro style, tempo, which is a, which is a unique thing that you picked up along the way, envisioned, and then installed two years ago. Yeah, Pete. Well, you know, it's it, for me... This concept, when we were at Florida, when I was with uh, Urban, you know, we had talked at length about, you know, the, the up-tempo, the no-huddle, and, and the ins and outs of it, and the strengths and the weaknesses, and we were, I can tell you, we were very intrigued every year and would look into it, but what really caught my eye was when we were preparing for the national championship against Oklahoma, and our defense was preparing Kevin uh, Wilson, Bob Stoops, the head coach, Kevin Wilson was the coordinator, and they had the ability. They were running out of a 12 personnel group and 11, but a lot of 12, which is uh, two tight ends, and they were running pro-style offense and some spread formations at lightning pace, so the defense... They kept the defense on the field. They were putting formations into the sideline. They were running two-back insert offense and and one-back offense in the same groupings. And I said to myself, this is the most dynamic, explosive thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, how can you really make that happen? And what do you need to do to do that? And I said, well, you know, I looked at them. They had a, a guy that was really accurate thrower. They could get, they had a, a dynamic tight end, but they ha- you have to have tight ends. You have to have a good offensive line. And I said to myself, that's one day, that's, that's where I think I want to I wanna shift this offense. Because, you know, my background, I've got a, an option background. I've got a two-back pro-style background. And then, of course, I was, you know, in the early stages of spring with Urban. So I had all those components and I said, how could you tie those together? Is that possible? And I wanted to do it. Came to BC, um, you know, first year you get into a program, you're trying to maximize whatever you have. And, and there was a lot of deficiencies and we had a big back who many thought would be a linebacker, not a back. And we decided we're going to run a power offense and we're going to run the the heck out of the ball. We had a big offensive line. And then as you learn what BC and the history of the program, you want to be tough, you want to be physical, you can get big linemen, you can recruit tight ends. You know, in, in today's world, maybe you can get a guy that can throw the ball because everybody's looking for just dual threat guys in, in, in these other places, even though I like a dual threat guy. And and we said, you know what, we've got smart kids. Let's do this. Let's let's build this. And we finally got to the point, and I'll make the story shorter because you don't have all day here. I have all day. But we, uh, we got to the point where we finally had accumulated to a point of recruiting, and I said to, to Scott Leffler, we were getting ready for the bowl game in Detroit, and I said, well, you know what? Let, let's do this thing. Let's let, we got the bowl. Let's just let's, let's shift gears. Let's, let's get into that 12 grouping. Let's code word everything. Let's work on trying to go as fast as we can. Let's look at really dissecting how do we, how do we 
philosophically move the ball from one sideline to the other and then insert him and then strike him, then go sideline to sideline. How do we get the defense jerked and running from side so we can gas them? And then they can't screw their cleats into the ground. So when you want to come at them with a two-back run, they're not all, you know, we use that term, screw your cleats in, lined up, head back, ready to come at you because, oh, here we come. It's eye formation. They're going to run in the box. So how do we do that? And we, we, you know, we just kind of roll with it here. I tell you, we took a vote in the offensive room. We had a vote, and, it, and you know, it was kind of split. And I was like, well, I'm the tiebreaker. Here we go. It comes down to my – so I said, we're doing it. That's it. Let's go. Let's roll. I wanted to run more plays. I wanted more plays. I wanted more explosions. Um, and, and, and we did it. And we were crude and rough with it and didn't really have it down as well as we could. And then we tried to refine it the next year. And, of course, we were able to – we had a very young football team, so it took us a while to get going. But we had the foundation of that laid. And then as we started getting better quarterback play, and, of course, we got you know really dynamic tailback play. And as the team started to mature, we could see the count of our plays going up. And that brought us to where we are. I think this is a cutting – a little bit of a cutting edge right now. And I, and I think there are a few other people that are doing it and talking about it. And I tell you why I say that. Everybody is in a spread offense right now. Everybody. And, you know, that's usually the time that something new starts to come around. Furthermore, the pros are – a lot of people are talking about how the quarterbacks aren't coming developed enough in the, in the dropback game and, you know, and linemen, you know, aren't developed enough in multiple uh, gap schemes, zone scheme, protections, and we can sell that. So that kind of helps us too. Let's be different schematically. Let's be different in our approach to recruiting, and uh, so that's that's that brought us here. You know, and now we're off and running this year. Um, honestly, uh, I felt like in this past game we didn't we didn't run enough plays. We actually slowed down a little bit, and and so we caught ourselves because we started almost maybe trying to have some more checks and things like that. And I said, you know what? we got to go back to where we were, and we're going to go back and try to really ratchet this thing up because we played a team that actually was going faster than we were on Thursday night. And our defense was on the field for 104 snaps, and I saw the stress of that on our defense. And I said to myself, no, we're going, we're, we're going, we're going to go ratchet this tempo back up again. So that's what we're working on right now because if you're not careful sometimes, you drift away from the core principles that we had set up for what we wanted to do, and we're going to go back to it. So walk me through the morning of the Quick Lane Bowl, December 26, 2016. You know, you have basically shotgun installed this thing in three weeks. You had to recondition your team in that time to play this many snaps. You're coaching against DJ Durkin, who you'd worked with over the years and know pretty well. And it, walk me through, like, the anxiety that morning and they and then how it worked against Maryland, who clearly wasn't expecting you to come out in a, with a completely different scheme. Yeah, I mean, I can remember looking at Scott. Scott looking at me, and we're like, "Okay, here we go." You know, it's kind of like, "Oh boy," you know, you got a fair enough amount of pressure on you to begin with. Let's just add it in here. But uh, you know, um, we were there was definitely some angst, but we came out firing. And and you know what's interesting? The kids they were like bought into it. Like that's what that's what got me. I said, you know what? The kids love this. They love it. I mean, it gave us a renewed spark. I mean. Uh, um, and, 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 you know, and we got gassed in that bowl game. We were gassed at halftime. We had never run that many plays in the first half. And we were in there like, oh my God, we got guys cramping and the whole bit, but the kids loved it. They're like, we got to go faster, you know? So, you know, I think it's like anything else too. You know, you can have sound reasons for why you do things, but the biggest thing is you got to, the kids got to buy into that too. You know what I mean? And they bought into it and they had a lot of trust and a lot of faith. So that, that, that kind of gave us that, you know, 
that 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 spark you know that that you like you know what we're doing the right thing let's let's roll you know don't worry about it well it's one thing to try to be like oklahoma in 08 it's another thing because they had sam bradford and jermaine gresham who ended up being pretty good players uh well Two weeks before that quick lane bowl, there was the I would I would argue the biggest verbal commitment of all the recruits you've had in your six years here at Boston College, and that was AJ Dillon flips from Michigan to come to Boston College. Uh, he's obviously trending towards being a Heisman candidate this season. He's fifth in the nation in rushing right now. Since he became a starter last year, I believe he's the nation's leading rusher overall. Uh, Walk me through a little bit of his story and in his recruitment. I feel like one of the things that that I've appreciated from it, maybe being a little biased living in Boston, was that the city itself here was was a draw for him. He's a, he's a local kid from New England, and he'd gone to Lawrence Academy, which is right down the road. Uh, played for a BC grad there, and just really wanted to spend his college years here. Um, obviously, he was attracted to the program, attracted to you. But walk me through a little bit of how you ended up flipping that commitment, which is which is really uh, helped change the paradigm of your program. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of everything you just said, and it's never one thing; it's a collection of a lot of things. But uh, at the end of the day, I think this is a very bright, mature young man. A understood the value of a Boston College education and what that meant. B understood the national media market of Boston, and you know the platform that's available for someone to come in here, a la what Doug Flutie did, and. You know, see if I'm on my right letters here. Um, you know, we were in a style. We have a mindset to want to f- be able to feature a tailback, and this is a guy that wanted that. Wanted to be able to line up under, you know, behind center, seven and a half, eight yards deep, and get the rock. Um, so that was appealing. Grew up in Connecticut, just like I did, and you know, was a Northeast guy. And like you said, I think really had an affinity not just for Boston College, but for Boston and the whole culture. So I just think it was one of those things that just kind of all came together, you know. And he says, you know, I can go to another place and be, you know, one of all these guys are recruiting. Or I can come in here and, and and I can make a major impact, you know, and and be in the right fit. And I think, you know, he's, you know, since then has said this is really the right fit and a great place for me. And I think he had a chance to be a Northeast New England guy to, to kind of be in his hometown, so to speak, and, and be a, and be, and be a star. And, 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 and I think it's awesome. And I mean, it's self-serving for us for me to say that, I guess, but I, I do think it's awesome. I'm a Northeast guy. So like, I can appreciate that. You can appreciate that. It's pretty cool. And, um, you know, it's not like we're not playing one of the most elite conferences in the country. I mean, we play as good a schedule as anybody in America. Um, he's in the right offense, and he's got Boston. And, and the national media of Boston, people say, oh, Boston's like a pro sports town. It's a sports town. And at the end of the day, if you're a marquee player, look what happened to Andre Williams. He goes from not, you know, not even being a, a true starter to being a – Wherever he was in the Heisman as a finalist, fourth, okay, fourth. And how many months? You know, a season? What can this kid do? And you're just telling me where he is right now, and I'm saying to myself, wow, and I only played him for one quarter of Holy Cross, and I only played him for, at best, a half against UMass. He really hasn't even, I mean, we could have gave him probably, he probably could have had, you know, two 350-yard games, 400-yard games if we really wanted to, but there's a bigger picture in mind here, and he gets that. That's the beauty of him. So my editors have made fun of me this year because I've I've written a lot about players' thighs. Ed Oliver, the big defensive tackle at Houston, has the largest thighs I've ever seen on a human. AJ is not a defensive tackle, though his thighs look like they very well could be those of your defensive tackles. I'm just wondering if you can give me a, a little window into the 
physical anomaly that he is and the power. Uh, your strength coach, Frank Pirano, gave me a funny quote. He said all of his 250 pounds are between his hips and his knees. Um, I'm just wondering if you can give me a sense of the, the power derived from that and just physically what's helped make him a special player. Yeah, I mean, he has a unique combination of sheer strength and speed. He has no body fat. His legs, his his thighs, his legs are just huge. I mean, and 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 they're they're he's big, fast, and strong, but he but but he's thick, and um, he's got good athleticism. I mean, he has a um, great hands, uh, and and he's super intelligent. So I mean, he's got all these things coming together. But physically, he might be the most impressive guy that I've been around in my career. I mean, you know, like I I got a phone call out of the blue last week from Earl Campbell. In fact, I got I got to give AJ his number. He, Earl just wanted to reach out to him because he said, you know, he's heard so much about this guy that people say, you know, remind them of him. I said, well, that's pretty high praise right there. So, um, yeah, he is a uh, he is a unique guy. His numbers, his sheer numbers are unique. And, uh, you know, he takes a lot of unbelievable shots now. You're talking about here's what's different about him. As a running back, I see very few guys that – Yes, he's he's got moves and but every run he's driving piles. Like he's not a guy that like you know rocks one guy and it he'll get hit and all of a sudden there'll be seven eight guys on him and he's dragging them. And what I've come to realize is for him that's really physically exhausting. So sometimes he gets gassed because you don't see that by a lot of these other backs out there. Like, but this guy drags three, four, five, six guys almost every time he touches the ball, and he takes some too many shots, you know, because he's just not going down. I mean, which is amazing. He's got that kind of balance that he can take some of the shots, stay on his feet, and then just <laughs> it's like uh, you know being pelted by by snowballs. You know what I mean? So you know that 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 concerns me a little bit, but it's impressive to watch. Uh, Thursday at Wake Forest was impressive to watch. Your offense put up 41 points. Uh, Anthony Brown, your redshirt sophomore quarterback, threw five touchdown passes, and I really thought that game offered a window into what you could become on offense. When they sold out for the run, Scott Leffler had answers calling plays. You you have some dynamic young skill and, and veteran skill there. Um Again, balance isn't the sexiest thing to talk about in football, but I'm, I'm wondering if if the snapshot of 41 points on the road in an ACC game with with a dynamic quarterback throw game is is a little portrait of what you could become, Steve. Well, that's what we hope we're going to become, for sure. I mean, that's what we envisioned, that we would have an offense that could have balance within this tempo and within these multiple formations, that um, we wouldn't be one-dimensional. And um, we have a back that people – you know, have to take notice of. And, 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 and in order to stop this back, they're going to have to load that box at times. And when they do, they, they're vulnerable, you know, to what we can do with our receivers and tight ends. And so that gives us the opportunity to have balance. And we have a guy at quarterback that's very accurate. He's, um, and he has a great football mind and, and he, he's going to be a heck of a player. Like you said, he threw for over 300 yards the other night and We've seen that steady now. He's growing into it. He's only just beginning. I mean, he didn't get to complete his season last year, and he was on a run at the end of last year. So I think we have a talented guy there. I know we do. And um, so I would envision that we should be able to uh, really um, keep our balance so that you know we have answers, and, 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 and that's what you need. You have a talented quarterback, a good offensive line, a super talented tailback, and, and, and a bunch of skilled players around him. 
Good tight ends, too. Uh, we'll flip to the defense quickly. Your Both of your ends look like they'll project as NFL draft picks. Uh, your nose tackle mate, too, but both your ends, especially Wyatt Ray had four sacks uh, at Wake the other night, and obviously Zach Allen is square on the NFL radar as a potential first-round pick. He got a really high grade and chose to come back last year. They seem to me to be sort of be the fulcrum of, of that defense, which, which played well. Two special teams miscues probably gave Wake Forest two touchdowns in, in that game. I'm just wondering what you've seen out of that side of the ball and uh, it, it does seem like you have good good balance in terms of in terms of both sides. Yeah, I mean we have you know I mean two marquee ends. I mean I'd say we have two as good as any two ends in college football out there today. That's for sure. We have a first rounder and another high draft pick. And then, then as you said, Ray Smith inside is a, is going to play pro football. I mean um, uh, at linebacker we can run. We have speed at linebacker and depth. See, we don't have the same depth at defensive end, but we have depth at linebacker. And in the back end, we have, you know, two NFL safeties uh, and a corner, um, you know, who's two corners, one young and, and, and you know, one that's not so young that, uh, you know, are pretty talented. You know, so we have, we have the pieces on defense. We have playmakers on defense and we can run. And we have some playmakers on offense and we can run. We're not a slow team. Um, how have you seen the ACC fallout so far? Uh, it, it's been a really, really interesting some, some sort of potentially seismic shifts again in the small sample size. We have a quarter of the way through the season. I'm just wondering, especially in your Atlantic division, you you were a little bit, I think, yesterday, like the rest of us watching college football at home on a Saturday because you played on a Thursday. How have you seen the ACC play out so far? Well, um, you know, it's, it's different every year. Every year it's a different landscape, but... Uh, you know, I see, uh, you know, you see the marquee team. Clemson's still the marquee team. I mean, there's no – each league appears to me to have a team that is, you know, kind of a clear-cut marquee team. And then what I think you start to evaluate in the leagues is, you know, is the bottom up or down, and, 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 and then kind of the middle's kind of the middle, and then how many of those middle teams end up stepping up to be a little bit more of an upper echelon team underneath that elite team. And I think you're seeing that play out across the board in, in the Power Five arena right now in every conference. And, uh, and, and, some, and, and it appears as though there are some, you know, some shifts going on with traditional teams, you know, and, 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 and football cyclical. This is what happens. Uh, we just came off you know, a historical run in the ACC. I mean, you know, we've had a couple of national championships and, 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 and either won or played in, I don't know what the number is, five of them maybe, in the last, you know, since I've been here at BC. So, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, we'll see what happens. It's early, um, you know, but there's opportunity out there, I would say. And I can speak to our league. In our league, the bottom of the league, is is the, what was the bottom of the league is not the bottom of the league and i think there's you know you know you take we just played wake forest and dave Claus has done an unbelievable job at wake forest and wake forest has elevated their program um and you're not in a hurry to want to play that team okay um and dave dorn at nc state you know last year you saw evidence of uh, of that program with the elevation of that and then, and then duke certainly was on course i know they lost their quarterback but you know and so forth and so on right so um It'll be interesting. I think the next couple, three weeks, you'll start to really see the thing sort itself out. Syracuse had a big win 
um, you know, uh, yesterday as well. So, but there's some shifts and there's some changes and, 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 you know, all you can do is keep your nose down, go one week at a time and, and have all your focus on the team you're playing. We travel to West Lafayette to play Purdue and I know how hard it is to play there. And, you know, they got a quarterback that just broke Drew Brees's all time throw record there. So for, for a game. So I'm saying to myself, wow, you know, I got enough to worry about here, but when we get done with that, we get to come home, and then we get to re-enter the conference race again. So it'll be interesting. Uh, I'm looking over at your desk. You have uh, the Urban Meyer interview from ESPN this morning up there. He's obviously someone you worked for, is a good friend of yours personally, as well as someone you've you've worked with. Your son is an offensive line graduate assistant there. I'm wondering how you viewed, I guess, the past six eight weeks of of, of what's happened there, and, and what you expect from uh, from Urban as he comes back full time this week. Well, I mean, you know, first of all, you're talking about not just because he's a close friend of mine. You're talking about arguably one of the best, if not the best college football coach or football coaches in the country. And, um, you know, you've seen a testament to this program right now in terms of what they've done in the first three weeks of the season is a testament to how he's built that program. He's uh, an incredible guy, and he's incredible on a lot of fronts. First off, um, you know, as a football coach, he's meticulous. Uh, he is a guy that can run every machine in the shop. He is a guy that has his eyes on everything. He understands the makeup of the team, the chemistry of the team. He understands the makeup of the staff. He knows how to push all the right buttons. Um, he knows how to make all the adjustments. He, he knows how to ask the tough questions. He knows how to push people in the areas that they don't want to be pushed. Those are all the ingredients, right? He's a, one of the most elite recruiters I've ever been around. He can evaluate talent. So he's built a real program. So here comes a, a fantastic staff that they have, and I'm just fortunate my son gets to be a small part of that. What a learning experience, you know. But, you know, you're talking about Ryan Day and Greg Schiano and, and Kevin Wilson and Larry Johnson. And, you know, you can just keep going on and on here. But And that staff, uh, uh, tremendous staff, took a program that Coach Meyer built and recruited. And uh, just like a lot of guys that have worked for him have gone on and had success, you know, they had great success with that program, which is a tribute to everybody involved in it. And, uh, you know, the other thing that Urban possesses is he's a tremendous person, man. I mean, I wouldn't be where I am today without him. Um, people sometimes, you know, not everybody understands the whole person, right? And the whole person there is a family man, a husband, a, a, a dedicated husband, a dedicated father. And this is a guy that loves kids. He loves players. He loves – he's so into, you know, I watched him just – loving on guys like a parent would and riding the emotional roller coaster of when it goes well and when it doesn't go well. And I've watched that to a point raise havoc with him because he's so emotionally vested. And uh, I don't know how many people really realize all that. He's a special guy. He is a special guy. I mean, I love him. And, uh, and, I, and I'm so thrilled for the fact that he's back and he's, and he's doing what he loves and what he should be doing. And he's back with his team. And I'm and I'm so happy for him, and I'm happy for Ohio State, you know, and uh, they've got something great going on there. We always like to close these podcast interviews with some, like, lighter pop culture-ish kind of uh, questions, and we know your affinity for uh, Italian food here in the city of Boston, where it doesn't get much better. Uh, give, you know, if, if any of our listeners are going to come into town, maybe for the Clemson game or the Louisville game later this season, give them two or three of your favorite stops in the North End and beyond here. Well, my first stop is Lemoncello. You know, I'm a big Lemoncello guy, and uh, I just love it because, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, definitely a meatball aficionado. I, I love 
meatball, the right kind of meatball. And it, where you, you know, where, what, what part of Italy your family comes from and the way your grandmother or your mother cooked has a big influence on what you like. It's not a slant towards anybody else. It's just what you're used to. And I like the gravy at Lemoncello, and I like the meatballs, and I love the family atmosphere, and I love the pasta. You know, they make a rosetta, a homemade rosetta, which is out of this world. So if you don't go in there, then you, you've, you've missed the boat. And I'm not, I got no, no, no stake in anything. I'm just telling you, that's what I do. You know, I'm going to go to, I love to go to modern pastry and I love to, I love to eat it modern. And if you want something different, you want to go down the seaport, you go to Strega down there, which was just fantastic. I mean, that was equally awesome. You get a Zupa de Peche that'd melt in your mouth. So one of the beautiful things, Pete, like you know, is first of all, how you stop, like for me, being, you know, staying underneath 300 pounds around here is really difficult, you know. And, but one of the beautiful things is the food. What, 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 what do you want to eat? What do you love? I mean, it's everywhere in Boston. You want Italian, you want to be in the North End, that's going to change your life, right? I mean, what do you, what, I mean, what do you want? You know, you want the best pastries in the world. I mean, like you, you've done it. Go down, have a great meal, wherever you choose to go, and then take a walk and get a pastry and get an espresso and walk around down there and just, you know, feel the whole vibe it makes you feel good i mean i I can't imagine a better place to be than than the north end in 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 boston and and then and and then if you want to do a 360 and you want to go to legal seafood you know and be on the water down there and feel that atmosphere and just and, and 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 eat unbelievable seafood i mean how great is that i mean how do we do this like you're in shape you're lean i lost some weight but i'm i'm fighting it now it's hard you know what about a bonus Cape Cod recommendation for uh, for vacation listeners? Well, you know, I mean, I, I I live in Dennis, but one of the places I you know you and I have seen each other out there. I actually really like to go to the Ocean House out there. You know, I'm a big fan. Problem is, I can never get in there. I mean, you probably know somebody. I know nobody. But like, I love going there, and I love the view out there. And you know, I'm uh, you and I have been out there where they have the outdoor bar and stuff. It just makes you feel like a million dollars, you know. And and uh, and I think that's a a great place or you go to the impotent oyster down in chatham i i I love that too or you know you you know you go out and chatham's bar in and you sit out there under the under the on the deck under the veranda and you yeah you know you have a couple of appies and a couple of cold drinks and you and you look out there it's pretty special right makes me want it to be summer again steve (laughs) (laughs) yeah me too you know i tell you what i you live your life in that month down here and you feel like a million bucks yeah Good. Well, BC 3-0 and heading to West Lafayette this week. We thank Boston College coach Steve Adazio for joining us on the Yahoo Sports College podcast. Thanks, Pete. Great being with you. All right. Good stuff, Pete. That was pretty good. Um, good Boston Italian food talk. All right. Please, everyone, subscribe and leave us a review, a positive review. If you have a negative review, do not leave that review. If you're listening this long and you have a negative review, you are a weird person. <laughs> Okay, I don't know what you're doing. I want to hate <laughs> the camera. I'd like to hate listen podcasts for an hour. <laughs> I mean, everyone's gonna have their own hobby. We're not here to judge, but what the hell? So leave us a positive review. It really helps us out. It, this thing doesn't cost anything. You know, do do a little work for us. Uh, share on social media. Help us find some listeners, more listeners. We're booming. This thing's actually doing all right. So uh, also, when you subscribe, uh, after you put down your positive review, you you will not miss later this week's race for the case, the picking between Pat and Pete, where someone's going to get beer at the end. 
Uh, and uh, you won't miss the Overreaction Podcast Monday and all of the good things we have going on here at the Yahoo Sports College Podcast. Talk to you guys later. <laughs>